called Apologetics Press. And lots of times when someone hears the name, they say, Apostolic Express, what is that? And I, I say, no, Apologetics Press. And they get a little smirk on their face and they say, well, what are you apologizing for? Well, you know, lots of times when we use the word apology or apologetic, it's as if we've done something that we didn't mean to do. You're walking in the grocery store and you accidentally bump into somebody and you say, I apologize. But that's not what the word apologetics means. In fact, if you were to go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, you would read where Peter said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That word, a defense, is the word in Greek, apologia. And what it means is a written or oral defense of a belief that someone holds. Now, in the first and second centuries, people had to defend New Testament Christianity. They had to explain often to the Roman officials what Christianity was all about. In fact, for many years early on in the Lord's Church, the Roman government totally misunderstood what was going on in Christian assemblies. In fact, they said that the Christian assemblies were perverse and were bad because there were rumors that the Christians were cannibals and that they were eating somebody or something of uh, human nature in their service because they were drinking somebody's blood and eating somebody's flesh. And the Romans thought that these Christians were meeting in secret societies practicing cannibalism. Well, the early apologist would go before the Roman officials and say, no, 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 you're misunderstanding what we're doing here. We are having a meal, a feast that we call the Lord's Supper, where the grape juice represents the blood of Jesus and the unleavened bread represents Jesus' flesh. We're not eating any person at all. And so the Roman government, after that was explained to them, if it was a reasonable official, they would understand, oh, okay, that's not what's going on. In fact, the early Christians were accused of being incestuous. They were believed to be marrying their brothers and sisters because they would go to an assembly and Brother Johnson would be married to Sister Johnson. And the Romans thought that was disgusting. I can't believe that you would marry your brothers and your sisters. What's going on here? And, of course, then the apologist would stand up and say, no, 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 we're not marrying our biological brothers and sisters. When we become Christians and are baptized into Christ, we are put into the family of God, and all of the Christians in God's family are brothers and sisters. And so that's the kind of explanation that would have to be given to the Roman officials. Now, we don't have to explain things like that anymore, but we do have to defend New Testament Christianity in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's defending the existence of God. Sometimes it's defending the inspiration of the Bible or the deity of Christ. And we get lots of different questions. Sometimes people will call us at Apologetics Press and they'll say, well, how do the dinosaurs fit into the Bible? You know, it's a great question. In fact, maybe one of our most often asked questions. We've got a two-lesson series and a couple of books in which we deal with that exact topic. Sometimes people will say, well, how do you know Jesus ever was really a historical person? Well, that's a good question. We've got good answers for those. One of the questions we get most often is represented by this particular incident. A preacher called us, and this preacher from West Virginia explained to us that he was having a serious problem. And we said, well, you know, how can we help you? This was my co-worker, Eric Lyons, was taking the call. And the preacher told him this story in a nutshell. He said that there was a young man, about a 17-year-old young man, who by all accounts in the congregation, people viewed this young man as a very strong spiritual leader in their youth group. said he would lead devotionals, he would lead singing, sometimes he would deliver and offer the invitation. And by all accounts from everybody that knew this young man, they reckoned him to be 
a spiritual leader in this congregation as it pertains to the youth group. Well, said he enrolled in a state school about an hour away from his home. And while he was there, he was put in a freshman class called Comparative Religions. And in his Comparative Religions class, the professor stood up one day, early on in the semester, as I understand it, and said, class, you have probably always been told that the Bible is the Word of God. You've probably always been told that it's inerrant, that it does not have errors or contradictions, and you've been told that God inspired it. He said, that's not true. In fact, he said, I'm going to prove to you that that's not true. The Bible is filled with errors, and I'm going to show them to you. And then he passed out five-page pamphlets, and the title of those were 70 Factual Discrepancies in the Bible. And as these students got their five-page pamphlets and they started going through those one at a time, he would say, this verse contradicts this verse. This verse contradicts this verse. Most of the students had never seriously considered this idea. They had always been told that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. Seventy factual discrepancies that at first glance look like they are discrepancies. Well, this young man didn't know what to do. He had been raised for 17 years in the Lord's church. And by all accounts from everything, we have been able to ascertain the entire congregation recognized him as a strong spiritual leader in the youth group. But one class, one hour away from his home at a state university, destroyed his faith. He came back and in essence marched into the preacher's office through the packet of 70 factual discrepancies on the preacher's desk and said, I've never heard that these were in the Bible. We don't have an answer for them. I won't be back to church. And to our knowledge has never darkened the door again. I was debating a man by the name of Dan Barker. Dan Barker claims that he's been in more moderated debates than any atheist in the world. As far as we've been able to tell, that looks like it's accurate. He has been in, I think, over about 85 different debates now. Dan Barker is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation in Madison, Wisconsin. It's the largest organization of unbelievers in the United States of America, boasting 18,000 members. Dan Barker and I were debating the existence of God, the God of the Bible, in 2009. The atheist organization on the campus of the University of South Carolina had invited Dan Barker and myself to come and debate this particular topic. And we were given 15 minutes each of opening statements. In your opening statement, you are supposed to give what you feel like is the most powerful information for your side that you have available to you. Dan Barker's been debating more than any atheist in the world, as far as we can tell, for about the last 25 years. He's got 15 minutes in his opening statements to give the strongest arguments that he feels he's got. And 10 of the 15 minutes that he had, he consumed with rattling off alleged Bible contradictions. With saying, well, we know the God of the Bible can't exist because right here the Bible says this and over here it says something else. Right here the Bible says this, over here it says something else. For 10 out of his 15 minutes, the strongest argument he's got 
is alleged Bible contradictions. Is it true that the Bible is inerrant, does not have contradictions? Or is it the case that in the original documents, when the apostles and other Bible writers penned these documents, sometimes they would make a statement that another author would disagree with it. Is that the case? Well, if you were to ask the skeptical community, you would quickly see that they would say, Dan Barker, people who are free of a theological bias notice that the Bible contains hundreds of discrepancies. He says the Bible is a flawed book. If you'll look at the bottom before you read the top, Steve Wells wrote a book called The Skeptic's Annotated Bible. Basically, he took the text of the Bible and like you would have a study Bible that would give you information about time periods or whatever the Bible's talking about, he took his Bible and wrote all of the things that are contradictory and discrepant and all of the problems with it, etc. And that's where he put together his Skeptic's Annotated Bible. He said that it's unworthy of belief because of its numerous contradictions. Dennis McKenzie, look at the bottom before you read the top. The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy. He says there are so many errors in the Bible, you can make an encyclopedia out of it. And so he has an entire book called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy, and here's what he says. Every analyst of the Bible should realize that the book is a veritable miasma of contradictions, inconsistencies, inaccuracies, poor science, bad math, Inaccurate geography, immoralities, degenerate heroes, false prophecies, boring repetitions, childish superstitions, silly miracles, and dry as dust discourse. But contradictions remain the most obvious, the most potent, the most easily proven, and the most common problem to plague the book. Now you understand what he means when he says a contradiction. What he means by that is he says that one writer will say something over here and another writer will say something over here. And those two statements cannot be reconciled. They are contradictory. They disagree to such an extent that there's no possible way they could be put together. And he says, that's the most obvious, the most potent, the easiest to prove problem with the Bible. Well, is that the case? What I'm going to do for you this morning is go through several of those 70 factual discrepancies. And of course, I would put factual discrepancies in quotations because they're nothing of the sort. And I'm going to show you that if you have the, uh, you can pick any that you want. You can pick the 70 strongest that you have and put them down on this sheet of paper to give to the freshman. In fact, that's what they've done. Now, we took every single one of those 70 and we have an answer for those, including hundreds of more on our website. But what I want you to understand is these are the strongest alleged contradictions that they have. And I'm going to show you that we can answer most every one of them. In fact, we can answer every one of them. And most every one of them you can answer in about two minutes. That's what I was about to say. Now, look at this alleged contradiction. If you were to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's Paul recapping the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And he says that Jesus was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Okay, according to Paul, who saw the resurrected Jesus? Peter, another name for Cephas, and then what? The twelve. Very easy to understand. No problem there. He was seen by Cephas, Peter, and then by the twelve. But now, notice this part of the narrative. Judas threw down the piece of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And Matthias was numbered with the eleven apostles after Jesus' ascension. So you see what the skeptic is saying. This is one of those seventy 
alleged contradictions. They say, how could he be seen by the twelve if Judas was dead? There would have only been eleven apostles. And so they say, this is a contradiction. Is it a contradiction? You know, at first glance you think, hmm, well, that, that certainly is something to think about. Uh, let's see if we can answer this fairly quickly. Uh, let me explain to you this. When you are dealing with alleged contradictions, you don't have to give the answer. You just have to give a possible answer. Let me explain what I mean by that. Suppose that there's some video footage somewhere and someone watches you go into a money box and get money out of it. And 20 years later, they see this video they're watching and they say, that guy was a thief. He got money out of the box. And you say, well, hold on just a second. Could there be another answer besides him being a thief? Could it be that that's his box and he can take money out of it when he wants? Could be. Could it be that the person whose box that is asked him to go get $20 to buy everybody lunch that was working that day? Could be. Could it be that that money box, he had used $20 of his own money to buy some pens and pencils for the church uh, library and he was getting reimbursed from that? Could be. Could it be we could go through several possibilities as to how that man could take or how you could take money out of that box and not be a thief. Would we need to show exactly which one it is in order for us to say, and therefore, there are many possibilities that show this man, this woman was not a thief. No, we just need the possibilities. Now, what I'm going to show you here is, in most all of these, there are numerous very good possibilities. Now, for instance, in this case, is it sometimes the case that we use numbers as names, but they do not correspond to their numeric value. Now, that sounds kind of complicated, but it's really easy to understand. Uh, take the Big Ten football conference. College Big Ten conference. How many teams are in the Big Ten conference? Anybody know? It fluctuates. How many? Eleven now? There were twelve at one time, as far as I remember, and now there are eleven. So when the ESPN announcer comes on and says, the Big Ten conference, do you call ESPN and say, you guys are a bunch of liars? That cannot be the Big Ten Conference because there are 11 teams. You would never do that. You know, that's just the same as the Atlantic Ten Conference. There are not 10 teams in the Atlantic Ten Conference, and yet it is still called the Atlantic Ten Conference. Why is that? Because the number 10 at one time might have had some type of significance, but it's lost its numeric value, and now it's just a name. Two by four. How uh, wide and thick is a two-by-four? Well, you know how wide and thick it is. It's two inches by four. It's, no, it's not. You know it's not. In fact, I was delivering this kind of information at a congregation, and one guy came up to me. He said, almost laughing, he said, we about had a split over two-by-fours. I said, really, no pun with the wood split intended. But he said, uh, he said, yeah, let me tell you what happened. He said, there was a lady at this congregation. We got a guy who sells lumber, goes here. And uh, she went to buy some lumber from this guy. And I think it was 82 by fours. And she ordered 82 by fours, and he dropped them off. And she came up to this guy who was telling me the story, and she said, Brother, the guy that sells lumber in this congregation is cheating people. And he said, Really? He's cheating people? She said, Yeah, I ordered 82 by fours, and when they got to my house, I measured them. And she said, They were not two inches by four inches. In fact, she said, They were only about three and five-eighths of an inch by 
one and five-eighths of an inch, and he's cheating people and keeping lumber when he should be giving people two by four. He's only giving them three and five-eighths of an inch by one and five-eighths of an inch. Well, the guy telling me this, you know, said he about had to stifle a laugh as the woman was telling him this and said, said no, here's what you need to understand. In the lumber world, a two-by-four, when it gets to the final consumer, is not two inches by four inches. Now, it might have been when they originally cut it, but then they planed it and they sanded it, and anything from three and five-eighths of an inch to one and five-eighths of an inch counts as a two-by-four. So if I were giving you a story and I said, I got hit in the head with a two-by-four, and somebody came up and measured that piece of wood, and they said, no, you did not. You got hit in the head with a three and five-eighths of an inch by one and five-eighths of an inch. Well, what's the problem there? Two by four is a name that has nothing whatsoever now to do with a numeric value. You understand what's going on there. A two by four doesn't have numeric value anymore. It's just a name. When I was little, there was a movie that would come on TV like the old uh, T, T, no, I don't know, TBS, uh, The Dirty Dozen. You guys remember The Dirty Dozen where there was a group of criminals that they were given a very dangerous military operation and there was a good chance they were going to die, but if they made it out alive, they got their freedom and they got to get out of jail. All right, when one of the Dirty Dozen died, did they change the name of the group to he's a member of the Dirty Eleven? No, they didn't. Well, if someone said he's a member of the Dirty Dozen and several of them were dead, then how could that be accurate? Well, you can see that sometimes numbers are used as names and they're not used as numbers. When the Bible says in Acts chapter 12, James, the brother of John, Herod killed with the sword. After James died, could John be still called one of the twelve? Yeah, because the twelve was a significant name that was talking about the chosen apostles of Jesus. It did not necessarily have anything whatsoever to do with a number because some of them were killed. Paul was added later, etc. So if we were just to say, okay, this is a contradiction because it says he was numbered with the twelve, but there weren't twelve. No, it's not. Now, that's one possibility. And it's a very viable possibility. In fact, if you wanted to leave it right there, you could. Now, we got another one. And it's a pretty good one. Uh, there's a grammatical construction called prolepsis. Now, prolepsis sounds kind of complicated, but it's not at all. It's when you take something's current status and you project it back to a time when it didn't have that status. Now, like I said, sounds a little bit complicated, but not at all. Suppose I were to put a picture of my wife up on the screen when she was six years old. And she's riding a bike, and I say, look at that. My wife has always been a beautiful child prodigy. She is amazing. She was the cutest six-year-old that you've ever seen. Was she my wife when she was six? No, but she's my wife now. So when I point you to the screen and say, look at my wife, she was not my wife at six years old, but because you understand that she is my wife now, you take the status that she has now and project it back to a time when she didn't have that status. If you had a picture of, say, the president when he was three, and you said, look at the president when he was three, was he the president when he was three? No, but he's the president now, and so you take his presidential status and project it back to a time when he didn't have that status. Everybody understands that. Now, when was 1 Corinthians written? Ah, oh, you're looking at about uh, A.D. 50 or so, 55. How long had Matthias been numbered with the apostles? 
You're looking at about 20 years. Matthias had been an apostle for 20 years. The church at that time recognized Matthias as an apostle. Could Paul have been using Matthias' present status as an apostle, as one of the twelve, projecting it back to a time when he didn't have that status? He was seen by the twelve. What twelve? The twelve that you know today, including Matthias. He could have been doing that, couldn't he? Is this a contradiction? Now, uh, let's stop right there. We just gave two very good possibilities. We did that in all of about four minutes. This is the strongest alleged contradiction material that they have. If you can answer the strongest, what does that mean about all of the other stuff? Now, here is how they generally approach it. The other day I was in, uh, where was I? Arkansas. I think it was in Arkansas, yeah. And I was delivering a lesson like this at one of the... uh, convention centers in town. They had rented a convention center and they had invited all the uh, town and uh, several atheists came to this particular event. And one of them, the first night, he came up to me afterward and he said, you know, I, I see you talking about the existence of God, but, but you got to admit the Bible's full of errors. I mean, just said it like I was going to be like, oh yeah, you know, I admit that. I said, uh, I said, I said, what? He said, well, you got to admit the Bible's full of contradictions. And I said, no, I don't have to admit that. I said, uh, can you just show me one? He said, well, there are just so many. I said, well, I understand how you would say that, but I would just like you to show me one. And he whips open a folder and has a list of, I think it was close to a 1,000, that were written in about 3.2 font that you could hardly read if you had a magnifying glass much less with your unaided eye. And he said, well, look at all these. And showed them to me for about three seconds, then closed it up. I said, uh, I said, I couldn't even read that. I said, can you just point out to me one of those that you think is very powerful? He opened it up. He looked and he said, well, truthfully, I hadn't really looked at them that close. I said, really? Here is what I have seen when I interact with people who make this claim. They will say the Bible is full of contradictions. And here's what I say, invariably. I say, just show me one that you think is the most powerful that cannot be answered. And here's what they'll say. Well, there's just two, there's, there's just so many of them. I can't just show you one because there are hundreds. I say, I understand that you think there are hundreds. Just give me your strongest one. If you give me your strongest one and I answer it, what does that say about everyone that's coming after that? Well, that means that if I can answer your strongest, then every other one can certainly be answered just as well. And so most of the time, I can't even pin them down enough to get them to give me a single alleged contradiction. Now, when I do and I answer it, they say, yeah, but what about... And then they give me another one. I say, okay, let me show you what we've just done. You gave me your strongest, we answered it, and I'm about to answer this next one. But understand that you said this was your strongest and I've already answered it. And they'll give me another one. They say, yeah, but what about... And you'll answer that. And then they'll say, yeah, but what about... And they'll just keep going. And they're losing ground on every single one of them. But they think because there are so many of them, then they're making progress. You know, it's kind of like that guy who was selling neck bones down at the, uh, down at the grocery store for 95 cents a pound. He was buying them for a buck a pound. Guy came in. He said, this is great. This is the best deal I've ever seen on neck bones. 95 cents a pound. He said, how are you able to do that? The guy said, well, I'll tell you what. I sell thousands of pounds of neck bones. He says, you do? You must be making all kinds of money. He said, well, I buy them for a dollar a pound and I sell them for 95 cents a pound. The guy said, what? He said, 
you're losing five cents on every pound that you sell. He said, yeah, but I'm selling a lot of poundage. (laughs) Well, if you lose money on every one, you're not gaining any ground. You understand what I'm saying? Now, this was one of the 70 alleged factual discrepancies that that professor passed out to his 17-year-old West Virginian. And this was what that 17 West Virginian just didn't have an answer to. It wasn't because there wasn't an answer. It was because he wasn't prepared to give the answer. Now, that right there is supposed to be one of their strongest alleged contradictions. We answered it in four minutes. Let's see what else we can do. How did Judas die? This one is used more often, I believe, than any alleged contradiction I have ever seen used. It's pretty easy to understand. According to Matthew 27, Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple department and hanged himself. If I were to ask you the simple question, according to Matthew chapter 27, 5, how did Judas die? What would you tell me? He hanged himself. Okay? Not hard to understand. But then we have Acts 1.18. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. A gruesome picture. But what's that got to do with hanging? We said he hanged himself, and this one says he fell into the middle of his field, of the field and his guts busted out. Okay, now if you're not careful, you just let me do what the skeptic does all the time. You just let me put words into the text that are not in the text. I ask you the question, how did Judas die? And what did you tell me when I asked you Matthew 27, 5? He hanged himself. Does the text say Judas died because he hanged himself? Well, the text doesn't say that, does it? Now, do most people die when they get hanged? Yes. Are there exceptions to that? Could it be that Judas hanged himself and he did not die in that manner? Do you know that probably one of the least effective suicide methods in the United States of America today just happens to be what? Hanging. Could it be that Judas did not kill himself when he hanged himself. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, Now, look at the next verse. Could it be that he was already dead when he fell into a field? Yes. You see, the text does not say Judas died because or Judas was alive when. Now, the skeptic wants to throw words into the text that aren't there and to try to trip you up. But let's look at this scenario. I used to uh, live in Denver, Colorado. In Denver, Colorado, there was a restaurant called Casa Benita. And when I was there, I was a little kid, so in my mind, this is how the thing played out. It was a wonderful place to eat as a little kid. You would go and you'd be eating your Mexican food there. And there was a big pool in the middle of the restaurant that was made to look like an outdoor waterfall scene. And there were rock cliffs, artificial rock cliffs, on either side of this outdoor waterfall scene. And there was a door where a good cowboy would come out. And there was another door where a bad cowboy would come out. And they would start yelling across the pool here and they would get into a a verbal discussion and then it would heat up into an argument and so they had pistols on their sides and they would say, okay, well, let's finish this once and for all and they would get ready to have a, a duel. And so they would pull their guns and the good cowboy would shoot the bad cowboy and he would bend over like he had been shot and then he would fall and do a bunch of flips and spins. He was a professional diver and he would dive into the pool. Everybody would clap and you went on ate your sopapilla and paid your bill and left. All right. Now, if that really did happen, if that wasn't acting and it really did happen, and we said the cowboy dressed in black was shot in the abdomen, would that be an accurate statement? Yes. Now, if we said the cowboy dressed in black fell to the bottom of the pool, 
Would that be an accurate statement? Yeah. Is there a contradiction there? No. Are they very different statements? Yes. Very different. One of them says he got shot. Can you die by getting shot in the abdomen? Yeah. Can you die by sinking to the bottom of a pool? Sure. But it doesn't tell us which happened if both of those statements are accurate. Now, could Judas have hanged himself? Absolutely positively. Could, after he hanged himself, could he have... Well, let's think about that. You see, not only is this not a Bible contradiction, but this gives you exactly what you would expect to happen if he really did hang himself. Do you think Judas announced where he was going to hang himself? you think he got with his buddies and said, oh, hey, by the way, I'm going to go right out here, so why don't you come check on me after I get done, make sure I got the job done? I, I dare say he did not. In fact, he probably didn't tell a single person. Now, Judas goes and hangs himself, and he hangs there for a day or two or three. And what's going to happen to Judas's body as he hangs there for a day or two or three? It's going to start to decompose. That rope is going to start eating through the skin of his neck. His neck is no longer going to be able to hold his body. And he is going to fall into the field because of the decomposition process and the gases that have built up in his decomposing body. When he hits, he's going to be, his body is going to be very brittle and his entrails are going to bust out. And I believe God put that in there for a very specific purpose to show you how far and disgusting sin will take a person and sin is. But it's also in there to show that when Bible writers are recording these events, they are not copying one another, and yet their different statements correspond perfectly to reality. Would you expect him to have hanged himself and then him to have fallen? Maybe the tree broke or his body decomposed and he fell into the field and his entrails got down. Fits perfect with what you would expect from a realistic description of what happened. And yet this is one of the most often used alleged Bible contradictions that the atheist has. Now we just dealt with two of their strongest. How many do we need to deal with? Ten? We could. I, I could stay here for the next uh, it, two hours. We could do this literally. We could do this all day long. After we got through 20, how many would they say we needed to answer? 25? Okay, we could do that. What about 100? Okay, we've got that. We can answer 100 of them. Just sit here. It'll take us about two minutes apiece. That's 200 minutes. How many hours is that? Some of them might take us three minutes or so. All right, 100. Is that going to do it for you after we answer 100? What about a 200 of them? Will that do it? How many of these would we have to answer before the argument fails? We can answer. Uh, continue with me. Three days and three nights. For as Jonah was in the heart of the fish, was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Okay, if I were to ask you, according to this verse, how many days and how many nights is Jesus going to be in the tomb? Three days and how many nights? Three nights. Okay, easy to understand. Now, Mark 8, 31, and Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and after three days rise again. In your 21st century understanding of after three days, what day is that? It's the fourth day. Yeah, sure. After three days. All right, and then Acts 10, 40 says, God raised Jesus up on the third day. Well, what's the problem here? Is it after three days? Is it on the third day? Is it three days and three nights? When... In your mind, have you historically always thought that Jesus was crucified on what day of the week? Friday, all right? Friday, Friday night. Saturday, Saturday night. 
Sunday will know Sunday night. And so the skeptic comes to this and says, look, you can't have it all three ways. Either it's on three days or it's after three days or it's three days and three nights, but you can't have all of them. And so the skeptic says, here you go. Here you go. This is a contradiction. Is that true? Is this a contradiction? Well, here is something that you need to understand. Just because we use words in a certain way now does not mean that people in the past used words in that way then. And to force our understanding of words onto their understanding of words would be a mistake. Let me show you what I mean by that. If I said my my boss jumped down my throat and somebody read that a hundred years from now, what would they picture happening in that uh, exchange? What if I said my boss bit my head off? What if I said tragically uh, my, my dog kicked the bucket? Now, we all know what I mean when I say my dog kicked the bucket. In fact, if someone were to say Kyle Butt is a liar, his dog has never touched a bucket with his foot. You would say, no, you're misunderstanding how the word is used here. What if I said, uh, the other day I heard this, uh, it said uh, that guy is a red guy in the middle of a blue state. Now, what does that mean that he's red in the middle of a blue state? Does it have anything to do with his color? No, not at all. And yet all of us right now would understand it, but somebody maybe 100 years or let's say 2,000 years later might not understand it unless they understand how we use the words red and blue, etc. Now, how are these words being used? I want you to listen to a guy by the name of Rabbi Eliezer Ben-Azariah. He is not a, an inspired writer at all. He is just telling you how the first century writers and before used the term ona. Listen, he says, a day and a night are an ona, a portion of time, and the portion of an ona is as the whole of it. Now you say, well, that's kind of odd. You mean, you're calling a period of a day and a night an ona, and any part of that you count as a day and a night, as an ona? That's what he's saying. You say, well, that's just, I don't understand that. That's just odd. Well, yeah, you understand it really well. I'm staying at the Best Western over here. Uh, check-in time is 3 o'clock. Check-out time is 11 a.m. Now, let's say that I want to stay for two nights. And so I check in on Friday at 3 p.m. I stay Friday and Friday night. I stay Saturday and Saturday night. And then it comes to Sunday morning. And I think, you know what? Well, let's say that we have bump services up to 2 o'clock this afternoon. We're not going to have a morning service. And I say, you know what? I don't really feel like getting up and checking out at 11 o'clock. I'm going to check out at 2 So I check out at 2 o'clock and I go and get my bill. How many nights have I been charged for on my bill? Three nights. Why? Well, because any portion of the day or night is as the whole of it. You say, we might not use that kind of language in everyday discussion, but we use it on a regular basis. In fact, if you've got a cell phone, you probably have X number of minutes on your cell phone bill that you get to use. Oh, maybe 500 minutes, 600 minutes. Have you ever made a phone call that was about 37 seconds long? How many minutes do you get charged for? One minute. Because any portion of the minute is as the whole of it. Do you understand that when the Bible writers were using this idea of day and a night, they were saying any part of a day and a night counts as a day and a night. 
If you were to look through the Bible, you would see that to be borne out. Genesis 7.12 says, how long did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights in the flood. But then if you were to look at 7.17, it says it rained for 40 days. Well, what's going on here? Any portion of the day is as the whole of it. Genesis 42, 17 and 18, same situation there. Talks about three days and then it says on the third day. Now, watch this one. This one I think is so very telling. 2 Chronicles 10, 5 and 12. This is the story of Rehoboam. The Israelites have come to Rehoboam and they say, Your father made our yoke very hard. We want you to lighten our burden. He says, Okay, come back to me, he says, after three days. Come back to me after three days and I'll give you an answer. He goes to the old counselors. They say, yeah, you need to take it easy on them. He goes to the new counselors and they say, no, you don't need to take it easy on them. You need to say that your little pinky is going to be thicker than your father's waist and he whipped you with whips, but I'm going to whip you with scourges. That's what you need to tell them. And so then the text says, they came to him. Now notice, on the third day, and now here's the phrase right after that. Just as the king had instructed them. No, I thought the king said come after three days. But then they come on three days, just as the king instructed them. The text is within eight verses of each other. And so obviously there's some understanding in the writing of any part of the day is as the whole of it. Now, if you say, well, I don't like that. That's not how we do time. Well, a thousand years from now, somebody can say, well, I don't like that you said kick the bucket. That's not how we talk about dogs or buckets. And you see that you can't Take your understanding of a term or word and project it back when that's not how they used that term. So, is this a contradiction? No, not at all. We just dealt with three of the strongest ones they've got. And the truth is, we could go and go and go. I, have, uh, I want to get to the very last one. Uh, there, here are some principles that I hope you're picking up that you can use to uh, work through these. I'm sure that you're getting all of them as I flip through here. But let me get you to the last one right here. I'm being facetious there. All right. If someone says this is a contradiction, you have to understand that the same sense of the words is being used. Let me give you something that I felt like was contradictory for years and years in my life. Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't really know what in the world to do with this. In fact, I was uh, just listening to a tape on the way up here, and a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman that I'm going to be debating in April used this as a, as a contradiction. In Acts chapter 9, verse 7... The text says that the men who journeyed with Paul stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Now, according to this verse, did the men who journeyed with Paul hear a voice? Yes. Easy to understand. Now, when you go to Paul's recounting of his story, he says, Now those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, does this text say they heard the voice? No, it says they did not hear it. And so for years, I thought, what do you do with that? One of them says they heard it. The other one says they didn't hear it. I don't know. Uh, what if you're at a ball game and over the PA, an announcer comes over and he says, I'd like to thank for being here tonight. And you look over at your wife and you say, yeah. did you hear that? She said, yeah, I heard the PA. Come on, I heard it. He said, did you hear what he said? She said, no, I didn't hear it. Well, I thought you just said you heard it. Well, I did hear it. Well, then I thought you said you didn't hear it. Well, I didn't hear it. Well, when Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, what did He mean? Let him understand. 
Do we use the word here to mean understand on a fairly regular basis? Absolutely, positively. You ever had uh, dad say something like, son, did you hear me? Well, what do you mean? Uh, he knew you detected the sound of his voice. What he meant was, did you understand to the point that you better obey me because if you don't, you're about to be in trouble. That's what he meant with, did you hear me? You know that if you were reading this in Greek, it wouldn't even be a problem. In fact, in Greek, the two words look different. If you go to the first one, the word akuo is used with the genitive form, noun form of phonus. Now, I don't expect that you get much out of this other than in Acts 9-7, that's what it looks like. But akuo is used with the accusative form of the word phonin in Acts 22, and it means they didn't understand the word. If you were reading this in the original language, you would understand one of them means they detected the sound, and the other one means they didn't understand what was said. Is this a contradiction? No, and yet it's one of the most often used to disprove the Bible. What's going on here? Well, dishonesty with the text from the skeptic. Sure appreciate your kind time and attention.